The clock on the microwave said 3.33 a.m., and White Rock Lake was quiet, a sheet of obsidian reflecting the small sliver of moon on a sweltering Texas summer night. Ryan had just finished a pint of Ben & Jerry's when the doorbell rang. He headed to the door, prepared to yell at any teenagers who thought Ding Dong Ditch was original. But when he opened his door, there was no rustling of the nearby foliage, no giggles from far off. The stillness that had been comforting a moment ago seemed more loaded now. He was halfway down his hallway when the ringing started again. He ran towards the door and flung it open, hoping to catch whoever it was before they ran into the night. For a split second, he thought he saw something moving in front of him. But when he blinked, he realized it was just a ripple on the lake, far beyond the comforting light of the wraparound porch. He shivered. His breath came out in white puffs. Goosebumps spread down his arms. He'd been woken up by the 90-degree heat less than an hour ago. Ryan closed the door and sat on the floor, waiting to catch the pranksters in the act. He turned off the porch light for good measure. But no one came. As he started to drift off to sleep, the bell rang again. He jerked, knocking his head against the wall. Bleary-eyed and clutching his head, Ryan opened the door from his seated position, peering out into the dark. There was a woman standing at the threshold. Her hair was in pin curls, and her silk evening dress kissed the floor. She'd have looked like she stepped out of a celluloid movie, if not for the blue tinge of her skin and the holes where her eyes should have been. She opened her mouth wide in a horrifying, silent scream. Then a deafening splash echoed in Ryan's ears as a wave of lake water spilled into his house, soaking his feet in the cold liquid. It felt thick somehow, heavier than normal water as if it had come from somewhere deep and dark and dangerous. His trembling fingers found the switch for the porch light, bathing the entryway in a warm, soft glow. The murky water still dripped from the front steps, but the woman was gone. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take it to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to White Rock Lake, the site of Texas's largest ever ghost hunt, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. In 1910, the quickly growing city of Dallas, Texas was parched. So they bought 2,292 acres of farmland from the Daniel and Cox families northeast of Dallas and dammed up White Rock Creek. The rising creek water and rain slowly swallowed the fields, turning the area into a glistening reservoir. Only the farmer's small shared family cemetery stayed above the surface, standing a mournful kind of watch on the western shore. The result was a 5.8 billion gallon, 1,254 acre reservoir that kept the city safe from drought. That is, until demand grew again. Another larger reservoir was constructed in nearby Louisville in 1929, and the city of Dallas turned White Rock Lake into a park that hosted up to 100,000 swimmers per season. But Dallas's water needs grew once again, and a 1953 water purity test showed that consuming the lake's water in its present state would be detrimental to a person's health. The city passed an ordinance making it illegal for anyone to swim in the lake or to deposit any trash, urine, excrement, or filth of any kind into the water. But the damage was already done thanks to both the use of the water by park visitors and growing pollution from Frisco, Texas, about 30 miles upriver of Dallas. Frisco's fertilizer runoff, animal waste, and general trash still flows downstream, and swimming is illegal in White Rock Lake to this day. The park is still well used, though, from beautiful hiking and biking trails to two separate sailing clubs for different financial brackets, Paddleboarding and kayak guides will still give you a tour of the 2.6-mile-long lake and some of its tributaries. But the beautiful picnic spots and pristine marinas hide a sinister pattern. Dozens of drownings, including several suicides, a failed water landing by a small plane in 1934, and the drowning death of a world record holder in underwater swimming in 1941. And then there's the cold spots, the feelings of being watched, and the strange water-soaked figures that speak to visitors only to vanish into thin air. Despite, or perhaps partly because of the darker rumors, the park is a frequent final destination for date night as young people come together to nestle close in a car or on a picnic blanket, and, to use a local euphemism, view the submarine races. But if you're otherwise occupied when someone or something walks out of the lake, don't say we didn't warn you. Dolores had been dreaming of prom night since she was a little girl. She remembered how her oldest sister had seemed to float down the stairs and into the waiting arms of her beau, 
a princess greeting her perfect prince. The flashbulbs clicked as he slipped a corsage on her wrist. Her parents had taken as many photos as they could of the young couple before the pair headed into the night. The smile on her sister's face had been enigmatic and grown up. As soon as her sister had gone into the great unknown, Dolores had tried on all of her dresses, the taffeta bleeding down onto the floor and the shoulders drooping. One day, she thought, she would be the one gliding down the stairs. The melodies of Earth Angel drifted from her record player as she put on her makeup. Now she, Dolores Eason, was a candidate for prom queen, all grown up, and she made this pastel pink number look good. Her hair had been in curlers for several hours now. Having perfected her lashes, she turned to her closet door to admire her dress for the hundredth time that night. But there was something different about it now. The fluffy pink taffeta wasn't on the hanger. In its place was a golden silk fitted sheath. It would make her look far older than she'd ever dared to imagine, but a vintage look would make her the talk of the party. She turned her head to call her mother, to ask her why she'd brought yet another option when she'd already told Frank the color he needed to match. But the gold fabric was so beautiful, almost liquid. She stood and walked towards the door, but when her fingers touched the silk, her old dress was back. She sat back down, shaking her head. Clearly, she was overexcited. She uncapped her lipstick and raised her eyes to the mirror. She gasped in surprise. Her hair was floating, as if she was beneath the depths of some dark body of water. Her hands reached up to touch her head, but she felt the metal of the curlers under her fingers. Dolores closed her eyes, willed her breathing to slow. When she opened her eyes again, she recoiled in horror. She looked like a bloated corpse. Parts of her skin had been chewed away. Kelp clung to her eyes and there was a horrific set of colors blooming across her face. Dolores ran to the bathroom and threw up. She asked her mother for help with her makeup because her hands were shaking. She couldn't bring herself to look in another mirror. Her mother plied her with compliments, saying how beautiful she looked, how pink was her color. But Dolores could only muster the smallest of smiles. She had to go back into the room to get her dress. She kept her eyes averted from the mirror, but the scent of muddy water and the decay of the dying still filled the air. She swallowed heavily and moved towards the dress as fast as she could. She kept her back to the mirror as she dressed, telling herself that the reflective surface hadn't rippled like water. Earlier, she had wanted nothing more than to admire herself from all angles as she waited for her parents' announcement that Frank was here. Now, she stood in the hallway and kept an ever-watchful eye on the door, as if he could whisk her away from her own mind. Frank came, 
she headed down the stairs and into his arms as her mother snapped pictures of the two of them. His cologne drowned out the lingering odor of death that had followed her around the house like a plague. She stepped away from him and held her hand out, waiting for him to slip on her corsage. As he did, her skin fell away, leaving nothing but yellowed bone and the bright pink flower he'd picked for her to wear. She swallowed her yelp and smiled at him. It was all in her head. She'd been to the drive-in too many times. Frank helped her into the car and they took off. White Rock Lake shimmering beside them as the evening fog rolled in. A heron flew low to the water, suspended above the depths as the air carried it home. For a moment, she wondered what it would be like to fly just above those dark waves to dive and climb again. And then, under the slowly rising moon, she saw a shape on the shore, moving slowly, quivering with effort, crawling forward, its fingers barely finding desperate purchase in the wet silt. It hit her like a wave of cold, brackish water. A man was crawling forward from the lake. His clothes were ripped, and his skin didn't look right. But she could have sworn his tie matched her dress. She nudged Frank, but he was too busy fiddling with the radio. Endless sleep was playing on every station. She hated this song. She hated the idea of a girl being drowned by the ocean, sent to her endless sleep. She pushed his hand out of the way and turned the radio off. Her voice cracked as she tried to explain to Frank what she'd seen. He told her she was dreaming with her eyes open. She told him he was being stupid. His fingers clenched the steering wheel tighter. Dolores said it again. There was a man in the lake. She would never lie about something like that. He had to trust her. Someone could be hurt. He took his eyes from the road and glanced towards the water. His eyes widened, and she could tell that he saw the same thing she did. Dolores heard honking nearby. She turned her head to the road as their car drifted farther into the other lane. Frank was still staring at the lake in shock. Dolores grabbed the wheel and turned as hard as she could. She yelled at Frank to snap out of it. But it was too late. The car was careening on top of grass and silt. Frank pressed the brake pedals, but they weren't working. He tried to turn the steering wheel, but it was locked in place. In a panic, he went for the brake again, but hit the accelerator instead. Dolores watched the strange man on the shore disappear as their car plummeted into the water and knocked the air out of her lungs. Her head slammed into the dashboard as the car went deeper and deeper. She saw nothing but black. The notes of endless sleep drifted to her ears, and for a moment she thought that she had just fallen asleep in Frank's car. The whole thing had been some horrible dream. But then she opened her eyes and saw that she was floating in pink water. 
she brought her hands up to her formerly perfect curls. Her fingers came away with blood. Dolores looked to the driver's side, but it was empty. The water was thick and tasted like sewage. In a panic, Dolores banged against the car, fighting against the weight of her massive dress. She threw her whole weight at the door, but her vision swam, and it was so very heavy. Dolores turned her legs towards the passenger window, but her beautiful giant dress was obstructing her vision and making her movements slow. She was so tired, her head pulsed. Her arms were starting to feel like weights attached to her body. More ghastly lake water went down her throat, poisoning her from the inside. Her strength started to dwindle. And then there was Frank. He was swimming through the water to get to her. No, that wasn't right. She strained her eyes, trying to get a better look through the pale shafts of moonlight that attempted to penetrate the surface. It was Frank, but he wasn't swimming towards her. He was swimming away. It is said that if you drive along West Lothar Drive, parallel to White Rock Lake, you will see a girl in a mid-century era prom dress, soaked to the bone and shivering. If you offer to take her home, as many kind souls have done, she'll accept your offer and ride up to a small family home on Gaston Avenue in East Dallas. When you go to open the door for her, like the gentleman you are, you'll find only lake water on the seat. But witnesses argue about the so-called Lady of the Lake's fashion choices. Sometimes she's ready for the sock hop, they say. But sometimes she wears an early 30s evening gown, literally dripping to the floor. The first sightings date back to around that time, but her appearance seems to change for the viewer causing them to see whatever beautiful and helpless creature they'll be comfortable letting into their car. We'll hear more about the Lady of the Lake after this. Now, back to the story. Tales of the Lady of the Lake are mainstays in the Dallas media every Halloween, and she remains particularly popular with teenagers, who added their own experiences and twists to the legend as they retold it. In the late 1970s, Dallas Morning News columnist John Anders contended that he had received a letter from a woman who claimed to be the real Lady of the Lake, or at least her inspiration. She told Anders that many years ago, she and her lover had parked by the lake to watch the submarine races under a full moon when his car rolled into the lake after a brake failure. She says she staggered out and flagged down help to take them back to her home on Gaston Avenue. She wouldn't leave a name or her address with Anders to confirm, only this pseudonym, Jam Net Jade. She never contacted the newspaper again. By 1967, a DJ for Dallas-Fort Worth's KLIF challenged all teens in the area to join him on a little ghost hunt on the lake, just in time for Halloween. 
On October 18, 1967, over 1,000 teenagers converged on White Rock Lake just after midnight to sniff out Dallas's favorite ghost. The area was slammed with cars and carousing, and firecrackers lit up the night, both on and around the crowded lake. 47 police officers were called to the scene to break up the crowd as they attempted to charge into nearby Cox Cemetery in search of the beloved ghost. But with the specter, who has already proven her ability to walk among the living as if she's one of our own, can we really assume the lady didn't make an appearance in all that chaos? Cliff heard about the search on the radio while cruising with his buddies. Everybody knew about the Lady of the Lake, and he was more than a little curious. He asked his friends if they wanted to find a dead body with him, and they all just shrugged their shoulders. It was a joke, or it should have been. The moon was shining brightly overhead as he parked facing the dark lake. The gang hopped out of his car. They weren't the first to arrive, but there were only a handful of others, milling about and casting their flashlights through the trails. Cliff kept his headlights on, letting them act as a spotlight to shine onto the surface of White Rock Lake. They could hear the party beginning on the lake, the snap of far-off fireworks, and terrible Elvis impressions shouted to the black sky. They stole a boat and pushed into the water, rowing like they were on the crew team, which they were. Skip pulled a flask out of his letterman jacket, and the boys passed it around. There were little teenage witches on the shore, their pointy hats moving up and down in the darkness as they walked. People getting a jump on Halloween early. Cliff had thought maybe there would be some cute girls dressed like the lady in the lake, but the only ones he saw were going the scary route. A boat pulled up beside theirs. At the front was a woman. And what a woman she was. A halo of blonde hair framed her face. She was captivating in a strange way. Her jaw was crooked, like someone had sewn it on halfway. The skin under her eyes sagged, exposing the pink flesh that rested just below her eyeballs. There were marks on her neck, like twisted vines eating away at her skin. And yet, as wrong as the picture was, they wanted to keep staring. Something made them keep staring. Something made Cliff want her more than anything in the world. She asked if they wanted to race from their little area all the way down to the other creek. It seemed a bit dangerous with so many other boats about. Cliff asked her for some sort of prize if they were going to go the full two miles. Was she sure he couldn't take her on a little night cruise? Find some bird nests on the shore? Sit under the moonlight? Her jaw opened wide, and her incisors shone in the moonlight, sharp as switchblades. She laughed huskily and told him, since he asked so nicely, he could have a prize but he'd have to beat her to the other side to learn what it was. As she paddled farther into the water, Cliff noticed that her hands and forearms were stained grayish black. 
Halloween, he thought, as he and Skip grabbed oars and started paddling. The two other boys watched from the back, passing the flask between them. Cliff yelled at them to help, but they wanted to watch instead. Her boat glided, cutting through brown, silty water with ease. Cliff paddled harder, trying to reach her. He had to get to her. He had to know what she would give him. Someone screamed behind them, but Cliff could barely hear it over his own heavy breathing as he pushed himself to paddle faster. Their boat was nearly in line with hers. The screaming continued and he glanced behind him. One of the giggling witches had fallen into the water. He shook his head and turned back around, but her boat was gone. He smelled salt water. Even though they were hours away from the ocean, something was dripping on the back of his neck. The hair on his arm stood up. But then he heard the kissing noises of the two chuckleheads behind him. He was counting his eggs before they hatched. The rush of teenagers in their dinghies and canoes parted for a moment, and he saw her, her hair practically glowing in the moonlight. She was ahead of him, getting away. Skip nudged him in the shoulder and told him to keep paddling. They were catching up. Cliff focused on the water again, and there she was, pulling through the water, half a foot ahead of them. Cliff's muscles strained with effort. The water was getting thicker. The weight of the silt that sometimes clogged the lake catching up with him. The paddles started to stick in the mud and sludge that made the lake dangerous territory at night. The woman lifted her own paddle into the air, a premature victory pose. Cliff pushed harder and harder, and somehow they snaked ahead. He smacked the water with his oar in triumph. He turned to look back at the woman. The moonlight reflected on her skin, making her almost translucent. She wore a soaked evening gown. He winked at her and asked for his reward. She reached out one of her hands to him. He grabbed it and climbed into her boat. The other boys wolf whistled. Her skin was cold and gelatinous. There was a peculiar absence of bone that had caught him off guard. He couldn't feel any hard spots in her hands just more dense flesh and a limpness to her motions that didn't fit with how fast she'd been able to row. She touched his chin and brought him close to her. Her eyelashes fluttered shut, and he leaned in to kiss her. But his lips touched air. The girl was gone, and so was the boat, and Cliff was falling into the deep unknown. The water was freezing as he fell further and further. The lake wasn't this deep, he knew that. He tried to move his arms, but they were stuck in place by the mud. A hand reached out to him from above and he grabbed it tight. But as he pulled the limb down, he realized it wasn't attached to a person. Just a bloated woman's hand floating limply by. He gasped in shock, and more of the disgusting lake water filled his lungs. He struggled, pushing against a force he couldn't explain. And then, above him, 
he saw her. She snapped her head towards him, and her eyes glowed a bright, terrifying green. He recoiled. She swam for him, and his mind couldn't catch up to his body. He was treading water as she grabbed him and pulled him further down with her. Cliff woke up on hard pavement, with the sound of a siren roaring in his ears. His head was pounding, and his arms felt like dead weights. Skip was bent down next to him. Cliff asked him about the woman. Skip looked confused. He pressed further. Skip said they'd all been drinking. Cliff had raced ahead of everyone and stolen a boat. They thought he was helping with the search until he suddenly dove into the water. They tried to pull him out, but he was tangled in kelp. Kelp didn't grow in lakes. Yeah, Skip replied, but he was stuck in it nonetheless. They got him free as cops came to shut down the search party. Cliff heaved an unsteady breath. He'd let the Halloween fever take his mind too far this time. But when he stood up, he saw the woman sitting in his car. She smiled at him, then disappeared as water spilled from the window. The ghost hunt is far from the only paranormal activity that's occurred around Halloween. While ghost hunters are often spotted traversing the trails, there have also been more official attempts to contact the lady. In 1985, a group of psychics decided to conduct a Halloween vigil for the Lady of the Lake. The media came down, armed with their recording devices, hoping to catch proof that the lady did exist. To provide a new approach to the usual human interest piece they write about the lake every Halloween. While no recorded evidence came from the experience, several people noted the scent of floral perfume wafting through the air around them. Many have pointed to this as a sign that the Lady of the Lake does exist, even if she doesn't always want to appear. Not everyone agreed that the lady hadn't made an appearance on that Halloween night, though. Psychic Mary King insisted that she had been contacted during the vigil to tell the true story of the Lady of the Lake's tragic death. This version involved a secret baby and murder at the hands of vicious gangsters that wanted to keep the lady quiet forever. Luckily for us, they appear to have failed. Coming up, we'll have more of the goings-on around White Rock Lake. Now, the conclusion of our story. The only remnant of the farmland that was flooded to make White Rock Lake is a small private cemetery where the Daniel and Cox families have buried their dead since they settled there in the late 1830s. The fenced-off family plot is now known as the Cox Cemetery, since only the Coxes continue to contribute to its maintenance. The burial ground is believed to host several of the potential candidates for the Lady of the Lake legend, and its rumored history has drawn many teens to its forbidden grounds. 
The students in the marching band at nearby Woodrow Wilson High School have used the grounds as a sort of initiation space, where the upperclassmen blindfold the freshmen and then leave them in the middle of the cemetery. If they could survive the night without embarrassing themselves, they were welcomed to the brass section with open arms. A 1979 Woodrow Wilson High graduate, Lisa Cavanaugh, notes that before the invention of cell phones, the cemetery was a place to hang out after big events, like football games. People would hide behind tombstones, jumping out to scare their friends. But it was most unnerving in the early morning, after the other teens had finally gotten into their cars to sneak back home. The cemetery is set back from the lake by private property and a patch of woods. But fog still sometimes makes its way through the trees, hovering at the edge of the wrought iron fence, as if something has told it to stay away. Patty wanted to murder her best friend. Lauren had begged Patty to double date with her, because Vinnie never went anywhere without Marshall. But Marshall was a drip, and he was driving her over the edge. When Vinnie suggested a place to park and talk, Patty wanted to bang her head against a wall. Thankfully, Marshall suggested they all take a walk. She could smell the freshly turned earth. As she and Marshall walked through the large archway for Cox Cemetery, this was strange because it was an old family cemetery. But perhaps it was important enough that some historical society had come a-digging. The place was oddly empty for a weekend. They'd probably just miss being run off by the cops. Lucky me, Patty thought grimly, kicking at some of the fresh earth. I get to spend more time with Marshall. Her nicest bell-bottoms bumped against one of the older tombstones as Marshall droned on about his rushing yards for the year. He tried to slide his hand into her back pocket. She elegantly leaned away. Ugh, kill me now, she thought, as she tried to redirect the conversation, only to be given a treatise on how Henry Kissinger was really misunderstood. There were rumors at school about the dead rising from these graves on particular nights. And all she could wish now was to be home with a good Romero flick on late night TV. It was quiet. Patty realized that Marshall had disappeared. She spun around to scan the rest of the area, but it was empty. A strange moan was coming from the fresh grave. Patty took a careful step forward, then another. The earth was dark and wet. It almost seemed to be pulsing. She leaned in closer, adjusting her body so she could get a closer look at both the ground and the old tombstone, which was nearly impossible to read. She felt a small tug on her right foot, as if it was caught on something. She tried to take a step forward when the hand wrapped around her ankle. Patty tried to break free and ended up on the ground. Her face was covered in wet earth and her ankle was still locked in the icy grip. She pulled away and kicked, 
The hand let go. Patty dragged herself up and raced toward the gates. Her foot tripped over a stone and she went crashing to the ground. She stood up, her knees embedded with pebbles, and turned around slowly, afraid of what she was going to find. The mound of dirt was moving, giving way to a human-like form. It soon became disgustingly apparent that the figure was just Vinny. He was rubbing his wrist and made some dumb comment about how she should be on the soccer team. Marshall and Lauren stepped out from behind the tombstones. Lauren was doubled over in laughter, while Marshall was at least trying to hide his delight in her torment, as if he wasn't one of the architects of it. Patty fumed and marched toward the gates. She wasn't going to sit around and be mocked endlessly when she was the one doing the favor, because Lauren wanted to neck her caveman boyfriend in his tacky car. Lauren tried to put a comforting arm around her shoulders. She said it was just a tradition, a little fun. She was the new girl, and this was part of welcoming her in. Patty shook Lauren's arm from her shoulder and kept walking, feeling heat rise from her stomach to her cheeks. Lauren turned away and headed back towards Vinny, muttering something about Patty being both unimaginative and a poor sport. A weight sat on Patty's chest. It wasn't tears or embarrassment, no. Something darker, angrier. A righteous fury at the injustice of the world and the powers that ruled it. There was something in the distance. An animal standing at the tree line. She would have said it was a deer, if not for the fact that it was standing on two legs, its torso lean and strong. Its long, spiraling horns climbed towards the dark sky. They stood there, the two of them, watching each other like equals, waiting. A strange contentment washed over her like a warm bath, a soothing power she'd always wanted but never been given. She gave one last look to the trees and headed back to the group. Marshall sheepishly apologized to her, but she didn't care anymore. A devilish smile came to her lips. She coyly asked Marshall if they could head out into the surrounding trees so they could have some alone time. His eyes lit up and she laced his fingers in hers. He wasn't talking about football now, thank. But she couldn't say the Almighty's name now. Funny that. She brought him towards the creature, nearly skipping as they came closer. She could feel Marshall's body tense and freeze, his hand going clammy. She giggled, holding in the impulse to ask him how it feels. Her heart leapt when he ran, nearly crashing into the fence. Patty followed behind, her voice shaking for show. Marshall tried to explain what he saw to Vinnie and Lauren, but they mostly seemed annoyed that he'd interrupted their makeout session. Patty suggested that Vinnie head out into the woods and see what had made Marshall so afraid, if he was sure it wasn't real. Vinnie puffed up his chest, 
talked about being the girl's protectors and strolled out through the gates. As Vinnie and Marshall disappeared into the surroundings, Patty closed the gates. Lauren laughed, assuming Patty was still scared, assuming Patty would ever be scared again. They waited in the silence, listening to the boy's footsteps moving further away in the dark. The woods were quiet, peaceful. Then, Vinnie and Marshall burst out of the woods and raced toward the gates, with Marshall leading on account of all those impressive rushing yards. They crashed into the wrought iron and tried to pull the gate open, but Patty held it fast. Lauren tried to pull her away, but Patty didn't move an inch. The creature emerged from the shadows and walked into the moonlight, bright shining horns and blazing blue eyes. It had the face of a goat, but the body was broad-chested and hairy, more like a great ape or a monstrous man than a four-legged creature. The hind legs were tall, and the body caved in on itself at an unnatural angle. It was the most beautiful thing Patty had ever seen. The creature shot forward and ducked down, raking Vinny across the chest with its horns. Blood splattered across Patty's new dress and Lauren's pale cheeks. Lauren was hysterical. Patty dug her fingernails into Lauren's arms, whispering for her to calm down. It was a joke, Lauren. Have a little imagination. Marshall climbed the fence. His pants tore on the spikes as he hoisted himself higher. But the creature, her beautiful creature, wouldn't be deterred by something so fragile. It lunged close to the ground and then pounced, grabbing Marshall tightly and pulling him down. Marshall kicked and jerked, but the creature only held tighter. It shifted Marshall's weight to one arm, grabbing Vinny's corpse with the other and dragging them deeper into the woods. Lauren's screams mingled with Marshall's. She raced around the area, but there was nowhere for her to hide. Patty laughed the way Lauren had, a perfect human imitation. Lauren tripped on the same rock Patty had and went flying, landing hard on her back. Patty reached down to help her, channeling a little of the sweetness she'd previously possessed. Lauren softened. It was a hell of a joke, but a joke still. But as Patty pulled Lauren up to face her, she wasn't laughing. Many people have reported strange creatures in the trails around the lake, but it was Nick Redfern who first captured the story of the White Rock Lake Goatman in his 2007 memoir. He reported that a jogger had seen the half-goat, half-man creature on one of the trails. The creature vanished before the jogger's eyes. Blanca Gonzalez told the East Dallas Lakewood Advocate in 2011 that she had recently been jogging on the trails around dawn and caught a glimpse of a dark figure in front of her path. It disappeared a second later. When Andrew Hall spoke to the Lakewood Advocate for the same piece, 
he mentioned a specific part of the nature reserve that always feels cold, even in the summer. It's led him to believe that there might be a supernatural creature lurking somewhere in the woods. While this potential spirit or cryptid has frightened Hall, Gonzalez, and Redford's unnamed jogger, there are others that take a more light-hearted approach to whatever might be stalking around White Rock Lake. There's a running group founded by Michael Farrell that frequents these trails and has chosen to go by the name of Team Goatman. There's even a local run for charity where participants can receive a trophy with the Goatman gleaming in gold plastic on top. It's easy to understand why White Rock Lake runs away with the imagination of a certain type of person. It's dark and deep, and your parents don't want you to swim in it. The proliferation of mysterious deaths and car accidents is easy to confirm, and the sightings of the hitchhiker in the soaking evening dress are so numerous that it's hard to think of her as anything but real. But if you dismiss the cluster of misfortune around the lake as correlation without cause, and believe the Lady of the Lake is just a story all the supposed witnesses like to tell, you still have one fact to contend with. One fact that even the most skeptical person has to acknowledge is true. In January 2016, a creek that leads into White Rock Lake glowed. A brilliant turquoise, odorless, tasteless, and with no clear danger to fish or wildlife. The color grew to fill the whole tributary, then dissipated. No source of the phenomenon could be found, and it never happened again. Did something rise to the surface that night? Or is it still waiting, realizing prey doesn't come to it when it glows? Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil Ritter and Jennifer Rache. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>